All right. Well, if you don't have questions, I still have a whole lot more to say from this morning, but I'll open it up to questions um, from anything we talked about this morning from Luke chapter 9. And make sure you wait for a microphone. Anybody? Zach in the back. For those of you who are listening, our microphone attendants are now traversing the... Otherwise, it's just an awkward silence. Okay, so um, I think at the end of your sermon, were you saying that you're going to go over like the second section more next week? Yes, sir. Okay. So That's an easy one. If you're going to go over more next week, then I guess <laughs> you don't have to. I don't want to spoil your thunder for that. <laughs> but... Um, I was wondering about um, uh, the part where it says, sorry, I don't have the insert with me, but um, like there's some of you here who won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Yeah. I will deal with that more fully next week. Um, I think in part, or at least if, if not in total, at least in part, it's referencing the transfiguration that's coming up where he takes Peter, James, and John, and they do see him without his... With, they see him with his glory unveiled, and they see him um, as he is, not in his humbled state. I think that's at least, if not all of it, that, that's a good portion of what it is. But we'll, that's a big topic, and that's going to be part of next week's sermon. I don't want to give too much away, so which is code for I need to do some more studying. I'd hate to spoil the surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, any other any other questions? Oh, you got some blanks missing, Lee? Three. Three. I, I know I didn't even say the blank for number three. Jesus requires his disciples true commitment. True commitment. See, about about when I was about halfway through my notes, I realized I had about six or seven minutes and I started sprinting, and that's when like filling in blanks falls by the side. Um so I apologize for that. If Daniel just didn't take so long with communion, I wouldn't have to, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Steve, what you got? I know you got questions, Steve. Okay, well, it, we'll open it up for this, and then we'll open it to general questions, and then we'll, we'll come to you. Any other questions from this morning? Um, Let me, let, let me unpack one further thing. Um, if you guys would open to John 12. I had it written in my notes, and then about 20 minutes in, I'm like, there's no way we're going to John 12. But that dual, I just want to highlight that dual edge to Jesus' ministry. He's coming to proclaim good news to the poor, the setting of liberty captives, the giving of sight to the blind, and he's coming so that seeing they will not see, and hearing they will not hear, and the words of Isaiah will be fulfilled. And that how part of telling no one, and him even shifting the title from Messiah to Son of Man, his much more favored title, his preferred title, um, self-designation, fits in, and, and John spells it out even more clearly. So if you jump to John 12, 
when Jesus, verse 36, John 12, 36, we'll start in the middle of 36 at the paragraph break. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Why? Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even if the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogues, for they loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. And what the point is, is they've had enough light. The light has been shining among them. And Jesus has just said in verse 35, the light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And then what does Jesus do? He hides himself. And there's a sense in which if you won't see the truth long enough, eventually you can't see the truth. The little you have is taken from you. And that's, that's what ties together that thread of what Jesus says in Luke 8 and what he says in, in quoting Isaiah 61. And it's explicit here. He, he had done enough. They'd seen enough evidence. Their refusal to believe wasn't due to any honest incredulity, any honest sense of unanswered questions. Why didn't they want to believe? The cost of believing was too high. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogues. They didn't want to be ostracized by the false religion of their day. And so they didn't go that far. He's a prophet. He's John Baptist, maybe. Who knows? But they, they stayed there. And this is John's commentary on that. And it, it's sad, but that's, that's what the other element of what we're looking at this morning is there is a sense of urgency. There's a sense of you can't just hang on the edge for long because heat and light soften and melt or they harden. And these people had Jesus among them for a long time. And then right at the end, Jesus says, the light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have light. And then he hides himself. And then we're told that him hiding himself is done in the context of that judgment of Isaiah 61. So that's part of, I think, why he tells his disciples not to confess him openly as the Messiah. And the other reason is because he would be, they would be almost certainly misunderstood even as they themselves are misunderstanding. They're not in error. They just are thinking that what Jesus is going to do when he returns the second time is what he's about to do now. And they, he tells them over and over and over. And they're so fixated on that messianic kingdom that they just can't conceive of a crucified, suffering, dying Messiah. So... Um, that makes sense. Any questions on that? Okay. Yes, Carol Hardy. Wait, wait for the microphone. The microphone's coming. Anna, that's yours. I know, but Alyssa just. Alyssa's trying to steal your job, Anna. Almost made it too. Okay. Okay. Um, re related to that, I mean, there are some places where he says things like that, don't tell anybody, I've 
maybe you said this too, but I've always thought because he didn't want to be just snowed under and lose lose where he his his uh, trek to to Jerusalem by being completely uh, enveloped by crowds of people, and that was one reason he said, "Don't tell anybody." Because I mean, is that part of this reason, or is that earlier or different? Well, in Luke's go go to Luke go to Luke twenty two. In Luke's gospel, it's Jesus' clear, unambiguous declaration that he's the Messiah that gets him the death sentence. So I think it's even more to do with, I don't want to be crucified and killed before it's time. There's a very strict timetable that Daniel lays out to when the anointed one will be cut off. It, it has to fall, it has to fall on um, high Sabbath, it has to fall on the Day of Atonement, it has to be in the right year. And in John's gospel, that type of notion of timekeeping is my hour isn't yet my hour is, is much more in the foreground. Luke doesn't make as big of a deal of that as John does. In John, Jesus is very aware it's not time yet. It's not time yet. But look, go to Luke 22 and you'll see what ultimately gets Jesus the death sentence is Luke 22:66. Now remember, it, we, did, we flew through this. Jesus, the Son of Man, must be suffer many things, and be rejected by what group of people? What groups of people? The elders, chief priests, and the scribes. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes. Right? So here's exactly the group of people that Jesus said he'd be rejected by. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Because that would be a capital charge. That'd be blasphemy. And so far, he hasn't overtly. I mean, even his quotation of Isaiah 61, today in your hearing, this is fulfilled. It should be obvious, but he hasn't directly said, I'm the Messiah, right? I mean, it, and so he said, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, which is the reference to Daniel 7. And it clicks. That, that's what you mean by the Son of Man? You don't mean Ezekiel, you mean Daniel? So they said, are you the Son of God then? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further t testimony do we need? We have heard it from ourselves from his own lips. So that issue of are you the Messiah? Plain, give us a plain answer is what ultimately, then we don't kill him. So he can't be off timeline publicly saying, I'm the Messiah. He's doing it in a way that those who have eyes to see and ears to hear will pick up. It's, it's plain enough that those who, you should be able to figure it out, but yet it's enough. This goes back to what he says in, in Luke 8:10, where he says, I'm speaking parables so that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. He, he's trying to speak in such a way that those who have ears to hear and eyes to see will understand and yet in such a way that those who don't, won't. And that's ex how the Son of Man title fits so perfectly for that job. Because for everybody else, he's not claiming anything more than Ezekiel claimed, or honestly, he just might mean mortal, until they finally realize, you, you, you mean the Son of Man in Daniel? Oh. <laughs> and so I, I think that's the issue, is, is you, know, you won't see Jesus publicly proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. It would be a capital charge. I mean, it would, be, it, would, it, would, it would bring it to a head prematurely. You can't let a guy run around saying he's the Messiah. 
you would bring him in, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, they would investigate neither rule thumbs up or thumbs down. They would not tolerate him to publicly go around saying he's the Messiah, overtly, plainly, clearly. Um, so he can say it to the Samaritan woman, right? He can say it to individuals. But you won't see him publicly, at least I'm not aware of him, publicly proclaiming he's the Messiah. And he tells his disciples not to do the same thing. So does that, does that fit in with what you're saying? Or does that answer? Okay. Okay. And yes, Elsa. Um, talking about seated at the right hand of the power of God, I just want to make sure I understand right because I heard something this week um, in my Bible study that I've, you know, I think I was always like a modalist, really, most be- not understanding fully. Well, and modalism, for, for people who aren't familiar with the term, means? That God appears as Jesus or as God or as the Holy Spirit. He can sh- He's like a shapeshifter. Yes. Mo- mo- I'll pause. Modalism is, is wrong. It's, it's right. an ancient heresy. It denies that there are three, and here's the word you're going to use, simultaneous persons in the Godhead. So the question is, for a modalist, there's just one God, and sometimes he appears as Jesus, and sometimes he appears as the Father, and sometimes he appears as the Holy Spirit. And they'll say things like, just as I'm someone's son, and I'm someone's father, and I'm someone's husband, you got Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The key word you're looking for is simultaneous persons. In the and thing. eternality is the other key thing, because some strains of modalism would claim that like the sun came into existence okay. at some point. Well, that's, no, that's generally how the modalists go. They'll say that he, God revealed himself as the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Gospels, and the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. And so it's just when God's doing different jobs, he puts on different hats. And where you got to zoom in for that is, okay, when Jesus gets baptized, is that theater? And the Father speaks, and the Spirit descends as a dove, and he's praying. The other reason that's important is, the other reason it's really important, though, is that, um, and this may not be, I'm interrupting your question, I won't forget. The other reason why the Trinity, if you ever wonder, like, why do people get in arguments about doctrine, the practical ramifications of the Trinity is this. Only if God is Trinitarian can we have any um, ground to back up statements like God is love. Let's think about this. Let's take the other big monotheistic religions, Islam and Judaism, who, have, who do not have Trinitarian understandings of God. You ask a Muslim, they're going to get law, they're going to get righteousness, they're going to get the fear of the Lord, they're going to get judgment and wrath. And, they're going to, and there's a reason why Islam and Judaism struggles with the notion of God as loving, because before God created the earth, who is he loving? Who, who is God loving before he made? If God's eternal, in eternity past, who is he loving? No one. So we can talk a lot about how God's loving now, but it's really hard metaphysically to, to root love as some intrinsic quality into who God is if love doesn't show up until God makes stuff and is absent when there isn't stuff. Whereas we've got in the Bible, Jesus in John 17 saying, um, I long for the fellowship and the glory I had with you before the world began. We've got a God who is in relationship forever. A father loving a son forever. A son loving a father forever. The spirit, as, as 
doing what he's doing. The Spirit's often doing things that, like, I don't understand. Genesis 1, the Spirit's hovering over the waters. Like, we just were told that he's taking part. We don't know exactly what he's up to, but, you know, all three members of the Trinity are involved in creation. And this Godhead has been in fellowship and communion and relationship forever. So when God shows up in Genesis 1 and creates and starts talking, he's doing nothing new. And when God shows up in Genesis 1 and, and starts loving and relating, he's doing nothing new. That becomes the, the, the foundation for, for statements like God is love to have any real meaning. It's rooted in the doctrine of the Trinity. And you get rid of the Trinity, and you end up with there's one God who has three masks, and it, it, it starts to fall apart really quickly. I mean, you can say God's loving, as Muslims will say and as, as Judaism will say, but it, it really rings hollow because you start pressing it, and you got to say, well, really, this is just some new thing that just popped up in creation. Or you can say, no, our God is love because God has been in a loving relationship for all of eternity. Um, now back to your question. That's modalism, folks. Oh, Zeb's got the mic now. You've got to get the mic back to Elsa. Oh, can you answer? You? No. I was just going to add that oh. in, in the functional, the way that the, the Trinity works functionally, the way that where the rubber meets the road, not only is the, the issue of the, um, the, the God is love issue, but um, even more foundationally for us as Christians is the gospel because... Mm. We, without the doctrine of the Trinity, we lose the entire book of Hebrews and all of Christ's mediatorial work, all of yeah, his, yeah. all of his going between God the Father and and us on our behalf. Because without that, we are we are doomed. Right, right. The whole notion of Jesus as a go between the Book of Job. I wish that I had an arbiter, an, an intercessor, someone who could lay a hand on us both, the one who bridges in his humanity to be able to lay a hand on humans in his divinity, that he can go before the throne of God. That disappears if, no, it's just, he's, he's just God and you deal with him. And the Trinity even shows up in our prayer life, right? We don't know how to pray as, as we ought, but the Holy Spirit within us helps us pray. Jesus is in the throne remediating our prayers to the Father. Right. And my, my whole point is that's why, that's why it's always been such a, a huge issue is because ultimately without the doctrine of the Trinity, we lose the gospel. That's why without right. the doctrine of the Trinity, you are not a Christian. So that's why we would say that there is no salvation if someone rejects they might not fully understand the the full implications and doctrine of the trinity yeah. but if the if you hear it explained and you're like no i don't believe that you're out you're way outside the camp at that point you you believe you must believe a different gospel than that of jesus christ well, you could be inconsistent couldn't you mm. okay well, i think you could, well, you could have you could have a, a you could misunderstand but i i think that if you okay. honestly hear the doctrine okay. of the Trinity correctly okay. and orthodoxly explain orthodox orthodoxly is that a word anyway um, if if you hear an orthodox explanation of the Trinity how about that there you um, go. and there you go. say no I reject that I believe in these manifestations as you know certain certain people gotcha. do yeah. Um, yeah at that point you're you're outside the camp you can't claim to be a Christian at that point because you believe a separate mm. gospel okay. There you have it from Zeb, folks. Your question, Elsa. Yep. Well, as I was saying, and I, I, I was a, a closet modalist, really, without realizing it. And I think a lot of Christians are, because 
when I, this verse, when Christ sits at the right hand of the power of God, you always think God sits here and there's Jesus, which is really modalism, right? Not necessarily. You don't think so? Because I heard a sermon that said, well, that means sitting at the right hand of God, it's it's really, it's a term for the power. In, not in, Reve- in, Revelation, in Revelation, the Apostle John sees unapproachable light on the throne, and then separate from the unapproachable light is the Lamb. I think as long as you don't deny other truth, you, 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 you're being biblically faithful when you picture a throne room with someone on the throne and someone next to the throne. You're not a modalist. If that's as far as you go, you're fine. Now, let me, let me take it further. I think everybody, to some degree, is one of the following two things. I, I'll tell you what I am. I tend to be, I see the three persons in the Trinity, and somehow, in a way that I don't fully understand by faith, they are one. So I get, I resonate with three people, and three people doing different things, and, and the Son doing this, and the Spirit doing that, and the Father doing this, and counsel, and, and that's all biblically true, and by faith, they're one. What does that mean? Not entirely sure, but they are. They're one, right? Others, other people I've met, totally get there's one God, and somehow, by faith, there are three people. I mean, there's a sense in which there's mystery in the Trinity that we're not going to be able to understand. So I think everybody is going to, one of those two claims, there is one God, right? Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Or the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. One of those two claims is going to resonate and be more where you're starting from, and by faith, you're holding on to the other one. That's my experience, at least. And you can be the person who sees one God. Somehow, I don't know, there exists as three persons. Or three persons who somehow, I don't know, is one God. I'm in the second camp. I'm, I'm the guy who, there's, three, there's these three persons who are somehow one God. But that's, but, but that's biblically faithful. I mean, it, it's only when you start denying other things that you get into problems. Um, you want to add anything to that, Seb? Well, you just, you're pronouncing all the, anath- I just want to make sure I'm not outside the, I just want to make sure that I'm not outside of the camp. I have not pronounced, um, I have not personally pronounced any anathema. This is, this has been Christian doctrine for 1600 years. This is, I'm just, I'm, I'm siding with all of church history here. Okay. And you and all of church history, I just want to make sure that you aren't going to pronounce a, a H bomb on me. So, um, Okay. I'm, I'm sure that for, someone. H for heresy. I'm sure that someone at some point would. Okay. But that's kind of been the case with everybody. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, and and the other thing to do is that there's a sense in which like these things are important, but something Zeb said is is I think also equally important. Um, there's precision, and people cannot have thought these things through. It's you're in a much more dangerous place when you've thought these things through and you're strenuously denying things, than you are in the position of. I don't really know. <laughs> I just know that Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm trusting in him to save me. And I, I, and I don't think you have to have a formulated understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity to be regenerate. I don't think you can deny it knowing what you're denying. Or at least I have... That's a, in other words, having studied, looked at the doctrine of the Trinity, and rejecting it is a much, 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 much more fearful thing than to be like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> You know what I mean? And so I don't want people to think, man, if you haven't, like, if you can't, you know, do your little chart and write an essay on what the Trinity is, you're not a Christian. It's much more the notion of there's certain truth that can't really be denied, um, that, that you can't knowingly, like, reject. But, okay. 
I saw another hand somewhere. Yes. Yo, Cody. See, you're over on Anna's side, and then that's why you were. Okay, I oh, just have Daniel. a question yes. about like the Trinity and is is like is the, does that show like the family as well like the mother and father like they're married and the the wife submits to her husband and they become one flesh seem like the God is one with like Jesus No 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 yeah absolutely now here's yeah. let me let me let me make something equally clear It's not that our mother and father and family and children is the primary thing, and then God comes along and is like, oh, hey, that's a really useful illustration. It's kind of like that. Rather, the relationship in the Trinity is the primary thing, I and mean, when God went to create, he created with a mind to reveal intentionally things about himself. So it's not that Jesus and the Father are like a father and son. Rather, they are the father and the son, and Abner and I are kind of like father and son. And so what you get is in Genesis 1, let us, you get, go to Genesis 1. Let's just do it. That's a good point. Let's, let's go to Genesis 1. And there's hints. Now, I, I, I don't think you can prove the doctrine of the Trinity from the Old Testament alone. I think it would be very difficult to do that. But once the New Testament gives you the doctrine of the Trinity, um, which it does clearly, um, not in any one passage, but the divinity of Jesus, the divinity of the Father, the divinity of the Holy Spirit uh, is clearly taught in the New Testament. Um, then you go back and you see all sorts of hints and all sorts of, um, like, oh, that's what's going on. And you see that in Genesis 1. Notice the, the shifting back and forth as God speaks between singular and plural nouns. So verse 26, then God, Elohim, singular, said, let us, plural, make man, singular, in our, plural, image, singular. There's one image for our image. Our image, not images. You're looking thoughtful, Zeb. Oh, yeah. It's, but it's a plural used for, yeah, yeah, sorry. But there is a place that talks about gods. So I thought, okay, I'll ask Daniel. His Hebrew is better than mine. Revoco for the moment, a temporal revoco on that statement, and now we'll move forward. Um, let us make man in our image, one image of us, after our likeness, singular. So we're getting back and forth. There's, there's, there's an image, a likeness for the us that is speaking that goes back and forth. And let them, now all of a sudden man who is singular is plural, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so when God wants to make man in his own image, he makes a married couple. There is no marriage ceremony in Genesis 2. They don't get married. Adam says, this is my wife. He doesn't say, do you want to become my wife? He doesn't propose in Genesis 2. He recognizes she corresponds to him and recognizes, ah, last is my wife. He recognizes that. And so when God wants to make people and wants to image himself and he wants to create man in his own image. He doesn't make a man or a woman. He makes a married couple. These two were then told become one and within them there is equality and order. Equality and order. Just as there is in the Godhead 
and always has been. <laughs> Sorry, that's a little shout out for some blog wars going on right now. Um, and so in the Godhead, we see the, son, the Father planning salvation, the Son accomplishing salvation, the Son being sent. I've done the work you gave me to do. So the Father gives the Son work to do, the Son does the work. In John 5, most clearly, um, go, to, go to John 5. This is another great Trinitarian passage. Um, and probably the clearest look at what the inner workings of the Trinity. Because um, we're so used to thinking of God's love in redemptive terms because that's primarily how we experience God's love. What, what I mean by that is when you think of God loves you, what do you first look at? Well, he loves me and he sent his son for me. He loved me and he was patient with me. He loved me and he forgave me. He loved me and he called me. He loved me and even though I deserved hell, he drew me to heaven. You're, you're talking in redemptive categories, right? The father has never loved the son in that way. Son's never needed forgiveness. Son, father's never been patient with the son. He loves us in spite of who we are, and yet we're told the Father delights and loves the Son because of who he is. Right? God's never forgiven Jesus. He's never had to. So when we look at the categories and the ways that God's love is demonstrated to Jesus, it's not the fundamental ways we think of it. What does Jesus say in John 5? He heals a man on the Sabbath, picks a fight with the Jews, um, and then in verse 17, he ups the ante. They're, they're, they're mad because he told this guy to pick up his mat and walk. And as I've said before, if Jesus wanted to avoid the fight, he could say here what he says in John 7, which is, is this really, he could enter into it at the level of, am I really breaking the Sabbath, guys? Come on, you're being a little strict. He, that's the argument he makes in John 7. He says, you circumcise on the, on the, Eighth day, and if the eighth day is a Sabbath, you do it anyway. And if the priest can perform that work, why are you mad at me that I healed a whole man's body? In other words, Jesus could argue back at the level of, this isn't really Sabbath breaking. That's not the line of argumentation he takes here. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father's working until now and I'm working also. Which is to say, what I see my father do, I do. Which is to say, whatever rights and privileges and prerogatives God has, I have also. And the Jews completely get that because they then said in the next verse, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus' line of argumentation here is divine prerogative, de claiming divine rights. My father's working, so I work. And what you're going to see is that when he talks about his father-son relationship, we generally think of father-sons along CSI lines and, and, you know, who's the parent and they go on Maury Povich and they take the test and, you know, Jerry Springer or whatever and try to figure out who the father is. That's not, this, these are functional categories. This is like father like son, chip off the old block. And so Jesus then goes on to explain his relationship to the father. And I know of no passage that does an extended treatment more fully than John 5. So Jesus said to them, and let me make one other preface before we dive in. He's going to try to keep two um, truths that he's going to reinforce, or, he's, or two errors he wants to avoid. He, on the one hand, will emphatically insist and claim what he said here already. I, I have full divine prerogative. I'm not little g God. I'm not sub-God. I'm God. Yet, 
I am not, he also wants to make it clear he is not in any way claiming opposition to putting himself up as, a, as, a, as another God alongside the Father, as if there's any daylight between the two of them. So he's going to go back and forth. Yes, yes, I have the rights of God, and no, I never do anything my Father doesn't want me to do. There is no, there's no conflict of wills. We have to choose between the two of them. We work perfectly in unison and tandem. Okay, That's what he's going to try to insist. He's God. He's not a competing God with the Father. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So there's the statement of, I'm not in, comp- I'm not in competition with him. There is no conflict between us. I only do what I see him doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Now, in a little sense, we can claim that. So that's the basis for claims like, whoever, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. To the degree that you make peace, you evidence that you're one of God's children, like father, like son or daughter, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called sons and daughters of God. Jesus means that in an absolute sense, as in, my father makes universes, so I make universes. (laughs) We'll see that later. Father raises the dead, I raise the dead. The father judges people, I judge people. Jesus means this in an absolute sense. Whatever, whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son, here we go, the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So according to verse 20, In what way does the Father show, demonstrate, act upon his love for the Son? A perfect self-disclosure, a full self-disclosure. So we have the Bible, God's revealed himself. Has God revealed himself fully in the Bible? No. Fully for us, like it's what he intends to give us. But Paul can say we see through a glass dimly, but then we will see face to face just as we are known, right? So God has not told us what he was doing before creation. There's plenty of things about himself God has not told us. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. Jesus fully knows the Father. The Father shows the Son everything that he's doing. And and again, back in this sort of father-son functional category, Carson uses this analogy. It's kind of like Stratovarius Sr., the violin maker, is showing his son the family business. And he shows him how he picks the wood and how he cures it and how he makes the paint and how he carves the body. And he shows him everything that he's doing. And then he gives his son to do everything that he himself is doing so that the son can, can take over the family business in that sense. It's not that sense of God's made the universe, now Jesus, you take over. But that's the picture that the people of Jesus' day would understand. The Father shows me everything he's doing, and he gives me to do everything that I see him doing. And I do nothing. Let me keep going. So Jesus said, truly, truly, uh, the verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. You add that together with what he just said. The son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Well, how much of what the father does does the son see? Well, according to verse 20, all of it. So if Jesus only does what he sees the father do, and if Jesus does everything he sees the father do, and if the father shows him all that he does... That becomes the foundation for things like he is the image of the invisible God. You've seen, the, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is saying, I do nothing, plus or minus, what I see my Father do, and I see 
everything he does. That's the metaphysical foundation for the, the, the meaning of the claims of the Jesus imaging the Father and things like that. Because Jesus, plus or minus, nothing, does everything he sees the Father do, and he sees everything the Father does. Keep going. We'll make, he'll make it clear that's what he's talking about. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear this voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So, so there's Jesus making it clear. I mean everything. I don't just mean God's forgiving and I'm forgiving and God is merciful and I'm right. I mean judgment, life, death, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, that's where we get, uh, that's where I'd go to at least. John 5, what on earth does it mean Jesus is the Son of God? That, that's the, Jesus is using functional categories, not biological categories, um, in, in, in at least this section. So, I am going to do the unthinkable and let you out early. We've got a minute and a half left. So, you are dismissed. Oh, Steve. Oh, we'll talk, Steve. We'll talk. <laughs> God bless. <laughs>